Hi, this is Wilson, pastor of Renew Church. We're a church for imperfect people only. Thanks for listening to our podcast. There's a few links in the podcast description. If you're looking to get connected, just fill out the Google form or shoot me an email. I would love to help you experience Renew as a family of God. We also have our PayPal giving link if you want to invest in this church community. Because of your generous giving, Renew is able to be a mission team to the city and care for people with special needs, mentoring at-risk youth, and support kids in the foster system. Lastly, subscribe to this podcast and scroll back to listen through the whole book of Matthew and other books of the Bible we've already preached through. This is our last week in Matthew where we'll be looking at the Great Commission and what Jesus' command is all about. Is being a cultural Christian different from being a disciple? And what does it look like to make disciples in our day and age? Hope you enjoy the message. Well, um, for Renew, we, we kind of do like two or three minutes every Sunday because a lot of our small groups are on Zoom calls and doing watch parties. But also for those of you watching online, uh, you could participate through writing a comment. We have an opening question. So this week is, who has authority in your life? So who in your life have you given authority to, to speak truth to you, to give you advice, uh, to mentor you? Who has influence over you? It might be an individual, a family member, family member. Maybe it's like a news source that you, you swear by, right? But who has that authority in your life? And then I'll come back and we'll walk through the last part of Matthew together. All right. Good morning, everyone. Hope you enjoyed having that conversation. Man, I think when, when I think about authority in my life, um, in terms of the news, at least, it's just so difficult to get unbiased news. Um, I think that's something that President Trump shared with us, you know, fake news, fake news. And then at a certain point, I'm like, it does feel fake. All of it, all of it feels like there's agenda, uh, there's bias, there's a, a narrative that the news is trying to communicate. And then I look at Facebook and Google and that starts becoming biased to me. All the videos I get, all the news sources that um, I watch is really an affirmation of my beliefs versus getting an objective perspective. So I think about authority in that way, like who do I trust? Um, what am I turning to to give voice and, and speak into my life? Uh, ultimately for me, I have some really amazing mentors that, that I go to and that I ask questions to who ask me questions and kind of help mine uh, truth, the truth that God's already placed in my heart and have really impacted my life. I think about a person that I got to have authority over, my little sister. So um, she's like my little buddy. We grew up together. She was a much better little sister than I was a big brother. Uh, big brothers can be kind of mean. I don't know if, <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry, Winnie. And um, one day I remember we were bowling with her friends and we both were really into bowling at the time. So she was about to beat me, which is a huge accomplishment for a little sister. And I don't know if she's ever beaten me in a sport before, but she had maybe like 179 on her 10th frame. And I had finished my 10th frame at 180. So we were both bowling really well that day, except she just needed to hit one more pin 
in order to beat me. And all her friends were sitting there and they're like, oh, dude, your little sister's going to beat you at bowling. I was, and I looked over at him. I said, I programmed her to lose. And they're like, what? And then she picks up a bowling ball, right? She hadn't guttered the whole day. She throws it down and she gutters and she like looked flabbergasted. She looked back at me and I was like doing my voodoo. And then she got another bowling ball out. She was like, I didn't get you, right? And then she she sets up really well. She walks down, she throws the ball, and she gutters again. And and it was it was the best. We laughed, she cried, I laughed more. And that's really the um the person in my life that I've probably had a lot of authority of when we were children and um wasn't wasn't that great to her. All right. So Matthew 28, verse 16 to, to 17 is all about Jesus' authority. It's all about, you know, are we allowing ourselves and inviting others into that authority? Because we get to choose who has authority over our life uh, most of the time, you know, especially as adults, right? My sister isn't under my authority anymore. And she's really, she's a lot happier because she's an adult now. And as adults, we get to choose. um, And Jesus invites us to choose to have him as the authority of our life. So in Matthew 28, verse 16 and 17, Jesus resurrects from the dead. He invites his disciples to join him in Galilee. In in verse 16, it says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I will be, I, surely I am with you always to the end of the age. The first thing we notice here, and we're just going to kind of walk from one verse to another, is verse 16, where Jesus gathers his disciples back in Galilee. They were in Jerusalem. He asked Mary to instruct them to go back to Galilee. And they're on this mountain. And they're standing on the mountain where Jesus started his ministry. So at the beginning of his ministry, he's on the same mountain in Galilee in chapter 5 through 7, giving um, the Sermon on the Mount, sharing with them what his kingdom would look like, how people would interact, what are the laws that he is enacting in his kingdom. And that in itself was also a throwback to Moses. At Mount Sinai, God took a a group of people who were slaves in Egypt and inaugurated a nation through laws that he gave Moses. So Jesus is repeating this in the beginning part of his ministry. And then at the end, he circles back to that space and invites his disciples to not only be a part of his kingdom, but to extend a kingdom invitation to all those around them, to uh, Jerusalem, Judea, and and the ends of the earth. Now in verse 18, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And this is very evident in his resurrection from the dead, him proving his divinity without question to his disciples that he had authority. But also throughout the course of his ministry, we see his authority and the way 
that his kingdom has reached into all the facets of human life. And then we look at how that demonstration of authority on earth was a precursor to his millennial kingdom. And so, for example, he had um, authority to forgive sin and the Pharisees gawked at him for this. So there's a man who was invalid, dropped down from the roof from his friends. And the first thing he says to that man is, your sins are forgiven. No one said that, right? Because only God can forgive sin. But he's ex- he's demonstrating his authority to forgive sin and his divinity as he heals this person uh, from so that they're able to walk. But that forgiveness of sin was fulfilled on the cross where he fulfills, where he forgives all of humanity. We see him resurrect Lazarus from the dead. Again, his authority over death is demonstrated in his ministry, but it's a precursor to the great resurrection where he resurrects all of us and everyone who's ever lived on this earth from the dead. It's a precursor. He gives food to everyone, to the masses. He multiplies bread and fish as a, another precursor to his millennial kingdom where all of our physical needs will be met. He demonstrates power over nature as he calms the winds and the waves. And then in the millennial kingdom, he reveals his, his all authoritiness in remaking the heavens and earth. Literally, he folds back the earth and puts it together again in perfect fashion. And lastly, he has authority in giving laws. He says, you have heard, right? You have heard from other teachers, from the Pharisees, from the scribes, but I say to you. And he's saying that he has authority to put kingdom laws and create uh, God's kingdom on this earth. So he demonstrates his authority in all of these different ways. And it's his resurrection that again speaks to that authority. From there, he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So when we look at this next command, Jesus is calling his disciples to make disciples. And I think this word disciple is like, in our layman terms, it's kind of like hardcore Christian. Like, oh, I'm not just a Christian. I'm a disciple, right? I follow Jesus. I'm, I've given my life to him. But Jesus makes no delineation between Christian, which is a word he actually didn't, didn't use, he, and disciple. He calls all of his followers disciples. If you're a Christian, you're a disciple. And it was actually the non-Christian world that called his disciples Christians. And what it meant was little Christ, people who resemble Jesus in his life and teaching, which is a really accurate phrase. So kind of our definition is non-biblical. To think that a Christian is just a box you check for religious affiliation, to think that a Christian is just someone who kind of inherited faith and goes to church on Christmas, um, this maybe apathy, Christian culture apathy, that's not a part of scripture. If it is, it's in Matthew 25. It's, it's in a really sobering uh, segment of scripture where Jesus separates the sheep from the goat. People who think that they're Christian with people who are actually Christian. And maybe to our Christian culture Christians, he would say, I never knew you. 
So everyone who believes in Jesus is a disciple. And here's how he defines discipleship. He says discipleship is baptism. Jesus' authority over our life. That's, it's a proclamation of his authority over our life. Discipleship is learning from his teaching. Um, Jesus' authority over our internal life. Discipleship is obedience. Jesus' authority over our external life. So let me talk about those one at a time. When I think about, uh, when I thought about getting engaged to Nina, I, I remember um, sitting down with her um, and saying, Nina, you are the most important person in my life. I've searched the whole world to find a girl like you. And I want to spend the rest of my life with you. I want to share our families, our futures, our finances. I want to, to be with you forever. And I remember washing her feet. And while I was on my knees washing her feet and finishing that up, I pulled out this little box, right? And I opened it up, and there was a little note. She picked up the note. She opened it up, and it said, I want to marry you, but don't tell anyone. I'm just kidding. It had a diamond ring in it. But imagine that, right? Imagine if I proposed to Nina, and, and I wanted to keep it a secret. I was like, even though you're the most important person, let's not tell Facebook. Let's not announce it to our families. Let's not do a wedding. Let's just be married, but like secret married, right? We'll have a secret dating relationship, then a secret marriage. No one will know about it. Wouldn't that be completely absurd? I mean, if Nina had any decency and dignity, which she has both, she would immediately dump me. Because what I'm saying is that you're not valuable. You're not very important. Uh, You don't mean anything to me. And... When we don't get, and baptism is the marriage part of your relationship with Jesus. It's saying it's not a secret. It's not something I'm hiding, but I'm really proud of it. And if you have seen any of your friends get engaged or married, it's all over Instagram. They have videos. They have documentation. They're making their friends tag them, right? It's like, it's a proclamation. It's telling people as loud as you can that you're going to spend the rest of your life with this other person. When me and Nina got married, we invited 420 people to our wedding, right? I, I think I went, my wedding was the biggest wedding I've ever gone to. We're, we're both pastors. And, um, and it was us celebrating and telling everyone we're married. Maybe one of the most important moments of my life um, was when I turned around after kissing Nina um, my pastor pronounced us husband and wife, and I looked down the aisle that we were going to walk through. All my everyone was standing up and cheering, and I just I was just thinking about how there's so few moments in life where everyone we care about is in one room, right? Every person that we love, our families, our friends, our relatives, are are smiling and celebrating together. I think we get that at our wedding and our funeral. Just like two really small moments where we get to see everyone we love in one moment. And it's because we're proclaiming something really important to us, to them. That's why we've gathered them. Baptism is exactly that. Baptism is this public event where we're telling everyone that we're giving our life to Jesus because he's given his life for us. It's not supposed to be a secret. It's not supposed to be like, Um, You know, I raised my hand when everyone else had their eyes closed and now I'm Christian. No, Jesus calls all of us to be baptized. 
and to do it in a public way unless you're, we're under heavy persecution. And just like a wedding, when me and Nina got married, it wasn't in celebration of our second child. It wasn't in celebration of our 10th anniversary. It wasn't in celebration that we're like the top 2% of marriages among our friend group rankings, right? It was our first step into married life. And baptism is our first step into our Christian faith. It's what we call a sacrament. It's an external expression of an internal reality. Internally, we're saying that we've died to our old life, that Jesus has washed us, and we're resurrecting in a new life with him. That's what salvation is. I'm dying to my old life, my way of sin, and I'm giving my life to Jesus and resurrecting in a new life with him. And baptism is us going under the water and coming out, representing our death to our old life, in our resurrection with Jesus. I want to encourage all of you, if you're a professing Christian, if you've already given your life to Jesus, um, get baptized. Obey him in that. And it becomes such a, a strong and important marker of your faith, right? I, I think a lot of us, maybe we give our life to Jesus at a worship night, at a retreat, at a sermon. We kind of get the feels. We, we start understanding the gospel. We pray to prayer. That's a very significant moment. I think that's a, the true moment of salvation happens there. But it can waver. We can kind of doubt that moment. Or, or we can be unsure of when it happened. I think baptism is that physical marker will always remember. So he actually commands his disciples to be baptized as a proclamation that Jesus has authority over my life. I'm giving my life to him. And then that plays out in two ways. First, we learn from his teaching, right? Disciples are called to teach other disciples. So our first posture is as a learner, and then we become a teacher. And as we learn from his teaching, we're saying that Jesus has authority over my internal life. That he is the one who will give me truth. He's the truth that I believe. He's the truth above all the other truths, right? When you finally find a news source that you, you, you trust the journalism there, they're not trying to sell you on a political perspective, and you're saying, okay, I, I can believe this, I'm going to believe this over all the other news sources, that becomes a truth to you, a, a truth that is superior. And what a disciple is saying is that Jesus' truth is superior than all the other stories, facts, and inputs I'm getting from other sources. Is that the way you approach Scripture? Is that the way you're approaching this moment? that you're allowing Jesus to speak truth into you and frame the way you see the world. You know, when I think about um, all those things that we've walked through this year, um, but especially when we talk about racism, racial reconciliation, um, Black Lives Matter, we're bombarded, right, with so many stories, so many narratives, so much history so many lessons. And those things are good. We have a lot to learn. I have a lot to learn. But is the narrative of Scripture, as Mark Sosi talked about, um, the, the, the narrative that eats all other narratives, right? An omnivorous narrative where, where this narrative is greater and, and the, 
the overarching story, overarching truth that everything else has to align to. Maybe the reason why the next four weeks after Matthew, we're going to be talking about racial reconciliation is because we need to hear from Scripture on this. We've heard a thousand other voices, but in this, in this palette of consuming information, how much of it have you wrestled with Scripture on? Have you said, Lord, would you speak to me on this? So we're going to be talking about racial reconciliation, but we're doing that through the lens of Scripture. And as a church, we go through books of the Bible. We've gone through Matthew over the last two years. It's taken a long time. We've, did, we've done breaks, a series in between. We've gone through um, John and Romans and Philippians. And we take our time because that's my greatest gift to you as a church member, is that you would spend this time with me and feel like you've understood Scripture better. You know this passage. You know this book of the Bible. You understand the teachings of Christ. That's what he's commanded us to do, right? Not necessarily just to hit hot topics uh, every for three months at a time for a whole year, but to know the word. Our small groups are designed to know the word of God. Before the sermon, most of our small groups are reading the word and learning tools and how to engage and understand scripture, how to be Bible literate. Other small groups are, are trying to apply the sermon. But our job as a church community is to, is to teach and to learn Jesus's, uh, the scripture of Christ. Lastly, a disciple obeys. So if learning is Jesus having a authority over our internal life, over our mind, over what is true, over our values, obeying his word is Jesus' authority over our external life, the decisions we make, the purpose that we live for, the direction that we take in life. And I would say our external life, our obedience to Jesus is really the evidence of whether we really believed what he said. It's evidence to our internal life, his authority over our mind and our heart, right? And so when we're not doing what he says, when we disobey him, when we sin, which all of us fall into, I think it's really a reflection that even though we know something, it's not the ultimate truth. There's another truth competing with this truth, and that truth is, our, is the real truth that we believe. Because our action is always about what is the real truth that we're holding on to. So if, if we said, man, like, I know Jesus told me to forgive, but I'm actually going to be bitter. I'm actually going to gossip. I'm actually going to hold on to this grudge. Then my real truth isn't under Jesus' authority. I know I'm supposed to forgive. I can share a sermon on it and recite the verse. But what's my real truth? My real truth is I don't forgive, you know, an eye for an eye. Um, I'll forgive when, when this person like grovels, right? Like that's the real truth that I believe. So our actions and our obedience is a reflection of our, the internal authority of Christ. Jesus wants authority in our internal life and our external life. And that's really what we're proclaiming when we get baptized. That's what discipleship looks like. Jesus, would you, in all of the authority you've demonstrated um, in, in death, in nature, in, um, 
you know, heal, miraculous healings, would you also have authority over me? Would I say, uh, as the winds and waves do, I'm, I'm going to obey your voice. You are my king. That's what a disciple saying, that Jesus has authority over me. But not only has, is Jesus calling us to give him authority over our lives, because it's an invitation, it's not a demand, right? Jesus invites us all into his kingdom. He also calls us to invite others into his kingdom. As we look at Jesus saying he has all authority, he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And then last, and then he says, surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. You know, I just looked at this passage this week and sat back and just marveled at even in our small church of 150 people that we've were like 70% Asian American. But if you look at the, the whole church, we represent every continent continent on earth. Our ethnicity goes back to dozens and dozens of countries. Last night, I was hanging out with the men of our, of our church, the, the husbands. It was me, Paulo, Dario, and Jerome. And just sitting, the four of us, we've, we represent, you know, Brazil, uh, Europe, America, and, and, and Asia. We, we're like four out of the six continents. When Jesus calls his disciples to reach the nations, over the course of 2,000 years, we have generations of disciples doing exactly that. And we sit here as a testament of the faithfulness of every generation of disciples, making other disciples, making other disciples until Jesus finds us, until the gospel reaches us across the world, across generations. There's so few movements that make it that far. And I think about, you know, all of us who are saved were saved by someone else faithfully sharing the gospel with us, right? So like I think about how Kevin became saved at a retreat because Philip paid for his retreat and invited him there. And Philip got saved because he showed up at Epic and he wanted to join a cult, but we said, no, be a Christian instead. And then, uh, and I got to participate in that process. But I got saved because my mom, my mom uh, became Christian when she got to the U.S. She was exposed to Christian missionaries in Taiwan, had an awesome experience. And when she finished her degree, she's like, I want to um, give my life to this Christian thing. So, so she asked a random person at a park where she could find a church. And she shows up at a parking lot. And someone greets her really warmly and because she was scared and was going to drive away. She walks into church, hears the gospel, and she becomes Christian. And I don't know how that person became Christian, but I think if we traced back each of our lineage, all of us span time and place. And we reach this moment of Jesus telling his disciples to make disciples. Have you thought about that? That if you could trace accurately your spiritual lineage, you are also in this point where Jesus commands these disciples to reach the ends of the earth. And then we are to carry that to others as well. You know, one of my most kind of motivating passages is from Acts chapter 17. 
It says, From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far away from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now I highlighted portions of this text here because it's fascinating to me that he's saying every single person on earth, he's marked out their appointed time. He's placed them in that period of history and for those years on earth. He's called, he asked me to be born in 1982, right? Like he's marked out that time for me. He's marked out those years for you. And he's marked out their boundaries, where you would reside, what family you would be born into, your ethnicity, where you would land on this planet. Every single person he's done that throughout the course of history, billions and billions of people, he's marked their time in, in the timeline of, of human history and their space on earth. Why? God did this so that they might seek him and perhaps reach out for him, though he is not far from any one of us. We are all placed in the exact point in time and place so that we would find the Lord. That's why. And maybe this moment, that's why you're watching this live stream. Because you might reach out and find God. All of us found God that way. Someone in our life that God precisely placed us in front of shared the gospel with us. And for those of us who have found God, he's placed everyone around us for that reason as well. That it wasn't an accident. You were born into that family or played volleyball with those friends or played basketball at that park or go to that workplace. He's marked them so that they would find him through you, through your voice, through the gospel you're carrying, through the authority you're living under. They see Jesus in you. And I wonder if as disciples we've owned this peace of purpose in our life. You know, a, a lot of us wrestle with, a, with great purpose. You know, my, our parents, a lot, a lot of them didn't wrestle with purpose the way we did. They're like, you know, I just want to find a job that pays the bills so I could have a nice family and house. They didn't want a meta purpose the way millennials and, and Z people do. We want a purpose, but God gives us the greatest purpose, a purpose way beyond something that's just fit for my life with my gifts and talents and passions. Something so much greater than even the best causes on earth. He gives us a cosmic narrative to be a part of. He gives us his purpose. He comes to earth to bring people to himself. He dies for that purpose. And then instead of Jesus walking around for the next 2,000 years and fulfilling that, he gifts us with the greatest purpose, with his purpose, to bring people to himself. When I think about Renew and what we're about, you know, one of our core uh, uh, values is that we are a, a mission team, 
I would say in some ways we're like a missionary family. You know, we're a family of God. We're in relationship. We want to love each other and know each other. But we're not just like any family that's just trying to be safe and comfortable. No, we're a missionary family. We're placed in the city of Fullerton to reach it. And I love seeing parts of our family go to RFKC and hang out with foster kids for a week. I love seeing that that family of multiple generations, grandparents, parents who have left their kids with, with aunties and uncles come in, uh, youth, foster youth that have come out of this become older brothers and sisters to these foster kids. And we, for a group of kids who have no family, we become family to them, a missionary family. It's, it's a powerful thing. Every intern that I have uh, is part of the contract. Like you have to go to this camp as a part of your internship. It got canceled because of COVID, but they were all, they all knew that that was part of the deal. They were all looking forward to it. I love that parts of our family dance with kids and, and adults who have special needs and bring a beautiful picture of God's kingdom there. They see them. I remember how we set up a whole uh, fashion show for one of the adults with special needs because she wanted to be a fashion designer. And like 20 people from our church set that up and we all walked down the runway after she put makeup on us or have us dressed in different clothing line. We had a great time. I love how a portion of our of our missionary family serves um, teens that are, are under-resourced and mentors them. Or watches kids who have gone through domestic violence. And all of those things are expressions of Jesus' kingdom, of, of the Sermon on the Mount, of saying you are to be, just like when Jesus raised someone from the dead, um, Lazarus, and says that's actually just like a precursor to me raising everyone from the dead. Renew and every church is to be a precursor to this amazing kingdom that Jesus is going to set up when he comes back. But we're like that microcosm of it where his value, um, his authority is shown in our individual lives and in our community. He invites us into that. Each one of us got invited in by another disciple and then he calls us to invite someone else. The last thing I want to point out here is that and this is maybe my most, the most comforting part is in verse 16, 17. It says, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee. And we, and we just are starkly reminded that one walks away. Uh, maybe as a pastor, even Jesus couldn't keep everyone. Like that's, I don't know. There was some deep, the, his disciples had some deep flaws in them. And one ends up abandoning him. All of them walk away during the crucifixion and one denies him. And then we see in verse 17, they saw him, but they worshiped and some doubted. In this high call of discipleship, in this call of going and making more disciples, he knows that our faith is imperfect. Even amongst the 11 that stuck around, there was, they weren't men of perfect faith. They weren't flawless. They weren't all shiny, but Jesus still called them. And he says, I will be with you in your discipleship journey. When, when some other truth takes precedence over Jesus' truth, when our, our sin takes over obedience, 
when we are know we're supposed to go, but we cower back in fear. You know, he's considered all those things when he's given you those dreams, when he's called you into discipleship. And he says, it's okay. I'm going to be with you in, in it. Um, but the disciples did something right too. They were in Jerusalem. Mary said she saw the resurrected Jesus. And Jesus says, go tell my disciples to go to Galilee. And all these guys showed up. And I think that's what I'm encouraging our church to do. That's what I'm encouraged to do every day. Is, it's not to be perfect. It's to say, Jesus, you're with me. And let me just take that next step with you. You know, he didn't command his disciples, go and wreck the world, turn it upside down, plant a bazillion churches. They kind of ended up doing lots of stuff, do miracles. No, in, their, in this fragile place in their, their journey, he said, just walk to Galilee, just a few miles down, just walk there. Like all of you can do that. And all of us can take one more step with Jesus as a disciple of his. All of us can sit and learn one more piece of scripture. All of us can take another step in obedience in the place of scripture we know, but we haven't obeyed. All of us can say, yes, Jesus, today I want to live a life under your authority. And I want to go to someone you've uniquely placed in front of me. You didn't place him in front of Wilson. You didn't place him in front of Pastor Chrissy. You didn't place her in front of Pastor Dave. You placed this person in front of me, help me to go. Help me to take that next step in imperfect faith, but knowing that you're with me. Jesus, we come to you this morning and we thank you that just as you've called your disciples into great purpose and mission, it wasn't, it was for us too. The way you called them is the way you call us. And who they were imperfect, scared, faithless, is oftentimes who we are as well. But we thank you, Lord, that you didn't just leave us with a command. You didn't just leave us with text to obey. You didn't leave us. You said you'll be with us to the very end. And it's with that, Lord, I, I pray for our church and I pray for us as disciples that we would take our next steps right next to you. In Jesus' name, amen.